As we stand, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that these words that we look at now may be a gift back to you. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As Matt read to us, uh, we're in Matthew chapter 26, which is found on page 995 in your Bibles, if you'd like to have that in front of you. Now, the main uh, theme of the sermon this morning is a response to Jesus. As I was thinking and praying about this, I wondered, what sort of response do we receive from those that we are speaking to concerning Jesus and his claims? Well, I find that uh, if I'm telling others that I'm a member of a local church, I get a positive but rather disinterested response. It's about the same as what I get when I tell them that I'm a member of a local uh, tennis and squash club. It's what I do. They, of course, are members of other clubs or have different interests. But it's when we start to speak concerning Jesus, his teaching, his claims that we read of in the Gospels, that generally we get stronger reactions. Well, one of the aims this year as a church is seen in our vision statement to raise and resource disciples of Jesus to go out and share the gospel with others. Well, before we can do this, we need, don't we, to be clear as to who Jesus claimed to be and what he did for us, believing this to be true and having faith in him. Because there are many ways, aren't there, that those that we are sharing Jesus with can respond to his life and teaching. They can reject his claim and doubt the very presence of Jesus. They can have serious doubts concerning the practicality of his teaching. We've seen this recently in the last few weeks in the evening services where we've been considering the Sermon on the Mount. Or they can accept them or they can ignore them. But this passage before us this morning gives us challenges as how we can respond to Jesus. We read of the response of three different groups of people. There's the church, there's the chief priests, the official representatives and religious leaders. There's the responses of two different followers of Jesus. But what about the context of this passage? Where do we find it? Well, we find it in the latter stage of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. And we read in verse 1 of Matthew 26 that Jesus has finished his time of teaching, healing, and miracle working. He's coming to the very time of the very purpose of why he came to earth. The time of fulfillment of God's plan of salvation for all people. He shows us this in verse 2 with the reference to the Passover meal that he wants to share with his followers. Now this Passover meal represents or marks the salvation process that God had enabled his people to have through being brought out of slavery in Egypt to freedom. 
Remember, that's found in Exodus 12. We've been in Exodus this last term. Well, the people of Israel were told by God through Moses to eat this meal every year, which will remind them of their God, his character, his mighty saving action. And so the Passover meal points us towards God's final action of saving through the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. But not only this, we read in verse 2, the final time that Jesus predicts that he's going to be killed and crucified. We read here that Jesus had accepted the Father's plan that he will die for the sins of all of mankind. And so, within this passage, we come to three different responses to Jesus, his life, and his claims. Three different responses. The first response is by the religious leaders and rulers of Israel. They are jealous of Jesus. Because Jesus was popular with the people. Everywhere he went, we read in the Gospels, that people came out in their crowds to hear his teaching, to see his actions of miracle workings. Jesus also spoke and challenged the teaching given by these religious leaders. He often spoke against their hypocrisy. We read of this when he turned out the money changes in the temple in Matthew 21. And so these high priests, whose job it was to lead the people of Israel, rejected the claims of Jesus to be the Son of God. And so the charge they brought against him was that they claimed to be the Son of God. And so they accused him of the sin of blasphemy. And they had come to the point of realizing that the only way they were going to shut him up and silence him was to kill him. Now we read here, of course, that they wanted to avoid arresting Jesus at a popular time, because there were thousands of people who'd come into Jerusalem for the Passover ceremony. And so, we read that they planned to kill him slyly. So these chief priests, who should have recognized that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies concerning the promised Messiah, reject Jesus as God's son. Well, isn't this the response that we often find the world takes? Yes, often the world will accept that Jesus was a good teacher, someone who had great moral values and ideas like the command to love one another. But the claim that he was the son of God and the only way to God was through him is often too much. And so rejection follows. And so, the first response to Jesus then was rejection by these leaders. The second response that we read in this passage is of betrayal by Judas, one of the disciples who had spent three years with him. If you remember, this man had spent three years listening to the teaching, seeing his works, being part of the group, that lived with him, had gone out and had preached in his name. He also rejected Jesus, but actively betrayed him. 
We read of this in verses 14 to 16. Now, why, of course, did he do this? Well, the commentators uh, have various opinions on why he did this. Certainly, one of the reasons is given that of greed or avarice. Because we know that Judas consistently took money from the communal money pot. But there's also another possibility. That is of disappointment that Jesus was not the Messiah that he had hoped for. He was not the Messiah who was going to take political and military power that was going to lead to a popular uprising against the Roman authorities and free the people of Israel. Now, we don't know exactly what Judas' motives were, but maybe he expected that if Jesus had been that type of Messiah, he would have had a good position within that administration. But what we do read is that Judas pursues his selfish aim of portraying Jesus for a very small sum of money. So therefore, the second response then is betrayal and rejection. But the third response, and this is the one that we're going to spend more time on this morning, is that of the woman who gives costly to Jesus. Look at verses 6 through to verse 13. Now, what about this event? What do we know about it? Well, it happens in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper. Now, we don't know very much about Simon the leper at all, but the suggestion is that Simon had been healed of leprosy. Even so, it was outside the comfort zone of the Jewish people of the day because lepers were kept out of the way of ordinary people due to the fear of catching the disease. And so we see here that Jesus is prepared to go into the house of someone who had suffered discrimination. He breaks into the world of social respectability and identifies those who are on the margins. But who else was here in this event? Well, we don't really know from this account, but in John chapter 12, which gives us the same event, we read of the following people being present. There was Lazarus, the man who Jesus had raised from the dead. There was his sisters, Martha and Mary. There was Judas, and there was other disciples. And so, some commentators say that this woman present at this event was in fact Mary, the sister of Lazarus. But that's perhaps, there's disagreement amongst the uh, authorities about whether that is the right Mary or not. But whether that was that Mary or whether it was Mary Magdalene or not, what we know about these Marys is that they did have some private income. And we read here that Jesus was the guest at this meal when Mary took action pouring this costly perfumed oil onto Jesus' head. Now, within the social structure of the time, this action was somewhat significant because it was taken by a woman who within their society would have been deemed to be very much a second-class citizen, men being thought of to be more important. But what we see here is Mary, if there is her name, was a disciple of Jesus. We see Three outcomes from her actions. Three outcomes. The first one 
is that she made an extravagant gift to Jesus. Now, we need to be aware of the fact that the practice of pouring or anointing guests who came to your house with oils was, in fact, quite common at the time. But often this would have been with a much lower quality and cost. But this action was different because this anointing was using expensive oil, what was called nard. It was an aromatic and pure oil, traditionally used for the anointing as an act of devotion and for the preparation of a body that's going to be buried. And this nard, this expensive oil, was extracted from an Indian or Arabian plant root, which would have come from other countries involving long distances. So the sale of this oil, it's been estimated, would have raised more than 300 denario. Now, for us, of course, that means nothing, but it's approximately a year's wages of a labourer at the time. So even for a woman who had some private wealth, this gift showed an extravagance which must have had an effect upon those that were present at the time. There would have been surprise and perhaps some indignation. What was this woman doing? We'll look at verses 8 to 10. If you like, she was making a statement concerning her affection, her feelings concerning Jesus. She was prepared to spend a lot on her master to demonstrate and show her love for him and acknowledge Jesus as her Lord. Well, surely this is a challenging example for us, her followers of Jesus today. Are we prepared to make costly gifts, both in our affections, in our lifestyles, as well as in our financial actions towards Jesus' claims upon us. Of course, we can't buy salvation. It's a free gift of God towards us. But don't we often show our love for our family and friends by giving gifts to them? So surely this is an appropriate response. This Commitment Sunday, her extravagant gift surely challenges us to make extravagant gifts which will enable Jesus' love to be shown to those who don't know him. She made an extravagant gift, but she also made an appropriate gift. Look again at verses 8 to 12 which records Jesus' response to her actions and the criticism by other disciples. Now, it's worth noting here that it wasn't only Judas that criticised her. As we read, the disciples, it's in plural. Jesus defends her actions and the criticisms that they make concerning her when they said that this was a waste, it could have been sold and the money given to the poor. Jesus defends her actions. He says, the poor you always have, but they won't always have the incarnate Jesus with them. Now, it's it's worth noting here that the Jewish people were commanded in their law to look after the poor, to see the poor as their brothers and sisters, and therefore care for them. We know this 
because what's written in Deuteronomy 15. However, the uh, commentator Carson says this of this passage. He says this, Jesus shows that he foresees his impending departure, but also that he himself, who is truly gentle and humble in heart, deserves this lavish outpouring of love and expense. What Jesus is not saying is that it's wrong to give to the poor, rather that this is an exceptional event and opportunity. Jesus clearly states in his teaching that his followers should love their neighbours as themselves. And as a result of this, there will be actions of giving to those in need. And we see, of course, the fulfilment of this in the early church, as recorded in Acts. However, this time, this Passover meal is clearly leading up to Jesus' betrayal and killing. This action of anointing is appropriate as there were going to be little opportunity for his followers to show their love for him before these events happen. And so, Mary, by using this expensive purpose, perfume, unknowingly prepares Jesus' body for being laid to rest in the tomb after his crucifixion. She demonstrates her love towards Jesus in a practical way. It costs a lot for her in money, but also in criticism. Again, a challenge to each one of us as we are followers of Jesus. How are we giving to Jesus extravagantly and appropriate gifts that show our love for him and enable his work to be done here on earth? How are we given extravagant gifts to him? The third response, the third um, aspect of uh, her gift is that it was a historic gift. Look again at verse 13. It's Jesus speaking again. He says this, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, to be fair, the actions of the chief priests and Judas will also be uh, accounted for when we preach the gospel throughout the world. But it's worth noting that Jesus is pointing us towards the fact that some actions are worth a lot more than others. That the salvation of people is worth a lot more than the building up of stone edifices, worth more than empires of wealth and reputation. Mary's actions will be remembered through history. And of course, it raises a question for each one of us who follow Jesus this morning. What will I be remembered for? What will we be remembered for? What do we want to be remembered for? What will this church be remembered for? As we look around our city, don't we, we see monuments to man's wealth and cleverness, whether they be large buildings or places of education. We live in an age, don't we, that glorifies stardom, celebrity status, 
power and wealth. Look at the television schedules. Ask young people what they want to be, a celebrity, a sports star, to have money and fame. Well, Jesus points us towards the exact opposite, to the loving, serving, self-sacrificial giving and actions of this woman. So, this is our Commitment Sunday, where we bring to God our financial and time offerings as we come to this Easter time. A good question for us to think upon. How are we to give sacrificially to Jesus, individually and as a church? And what do we want to be remembered for? We are known, of course, as a welcoming church, I'm glad to say. But will we also be known as a church that goes out into the community, showing the love of Jesus towards all, enabling the Holy Spirit to work through us to change the social, emotional and spiritual fabric of the area, enabling the work of Jesus to be done? Will we be known as a church of prayer, a place open to people to come to pray each week? Will we enable God's work to be done here? Well, this small cameo that we have in front of us this morning presents us with different approaches to Jesus. Rejection, betrayal, and costly sacrificial giving. So let us pursue offering up our all to him who gave his life on that cross so that we can come to God through the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Amen.